I get really excited about seeing that there's literally nothing a female can't do in any farming business anymore. Um, I always giggle about, so back when I was getting involved off farm in industry things, so being involved in committees and going to field days and so on, and um, very, very few uh, role models for me to look at who else was out there doing it. And um, I'd struggle with you can't be what you can't see, because I did. Um, And there weren't very many other women doing like if I went to a field day, I'd be one of the only ones, if not the only female, which which was cool. Like I, was, I had so many things I could learn and I giggled out. I often quite share, um, I quite enjoy sharing with people. They go, you know, the problem with gender diversity in agriculture, I have to queue for the ladies' toilets now. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> and I giggle when I go to events and I'm standing in a big long queue and the blokes are just walking straight in and out of the cubicles or going to a tree. Behind, behind, <laughs> behind the rainwater tank. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. G'day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by the remarkable Erin Gorta. Erin's journey from farm girl in Mobrup WA to agribusiness consultant, non-executive director of Australian Grain Technologies, council member for the Council for Australian and Arab Relations, director of the Grow Group Alliance, chair of the Mount Burnett Rural and Regional Advancement Foundation, plus agribusiness leader, mentor, is nothing short of inspiring. We delve into Erin's rich background and experiences, exploring her deep-rooted connection to agriculture and her impressive list of achievements over the past decade. The conversation unfolds as Erin shares her early experiences growing up in the country, reflecting on whether she always envisaged a career in farming or in agriculture and how she initially took up a career in teaching so she could stay in the country. Erin sheds light on the Ag for You Careers Pipeline Program, an initiative she founded to help final year uni students in WA prepare for careers in the rural industry. And we delve into another great passion of hers, Erin's role as Chair of the Rural and Regional Advancement Committee for the Mount Burnett Foundation, where she discusses the foundation's goals, impact on rural communities, and the innovative approach to community building. Erin shares her insights on rural leadership, drawing from her experiences and involvement in programs like the Rural Leadership Program, and touches on the importance of mentorship and the role of role models in the industry. This is an engaging conversation with Erin, a leader, an advocate, and an inspiration to others in the world of rural leadership. Now over to Erin. Well, um, officially welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Yeah, so Erin and I, were, uh, we every time I, before I get a guest on, we always talk beforehand. I think we've already had this podcast, but on a telephone. But we got here today and we couldn't actually remember what, what we were here to talk about. That's right. Standard operating procedure for both of us, I think, David. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, now, I've got to do the official thing. So I know Erin as a friend and we grew up in the same um, district, um, of of Western Australia, but I actually went and had a look at your LinkedIn page, and you've been a busy girl, right? And um, am I allowed to say girl anymore? I mean, that's, that can. that sounds condescending, and I, I don't mean it like that. Anyway, that's fine. <laughs> 
Busy lady, right? Um, vice chair, independent director of a growers group, council member of the council, oh, uh, council of Arab relations, council member, yeah, uh, non-executive director of Australian Grain Technology, chair of Mount Burnett, which we'll talk about, and the Re- Regional and Advancement Committee, did I get that right? Past director of MLA. Oh, and of course, uh, past executive officer of Southern Dirt, Never Green, down in good old Kochi, and graduate of the Rural Leadership Programs. Wow, long way from a farm girl from Mobrup, Erin. Yes, it's a it's a long way, but it's all interconnected. I I think back through all those things that you that you list and say and think they all fit together quite nicely as a bit of a jigsaw of a of a journey that I've gone on. I I. I tend to stay away from a career. I don't feel like it's been a career, very much a, a journey from from farm days. That's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because when we grow up on farms, we don't really have, well, I never grew up with this concept of career, mm-hmm. isn't it? We just sort of do. <laughs> that's right. And I, I sometimes reflect on that thinking maybe that's something that in an agricultural sense is something that we could actually adopt so that the outside perception is a li- little bit more about um, farmers and people that are involved in farming-related businesses actually do refer to it as a career in agriculture. Yeah. Do, do you often hear that? You're involved in, in many different committees and, and, and agribusiness generally, but do you ever people hear people refer to themselves as having an agri-career? or a, You might have an agri-business career maybe, but you wouldn't have a farm business career. Do you ever hear that term bandied about? Certainly farming business because I'm a big advocate of referring to farming as a business, as it is. Um, as a farming business career, maybe not so much. Then I think, well, have I actually asked that question? I may not have asked the question in order for that yeah. answer to come forth as well. Yeah, definitely. So you weren't always a jet-setting rural leader. You grew up in Mobrup. So for those of you from the rest of the world and Australia, Mobrup is in the southwest corner of Western Australia, about about two and a half, three hours, three hours from um, Perth, and about one and a half hours from Albany. So right in sort of the middle-ish, middle there. of everywhere, middle I used of to everywhere, like to think middle of everywhere. But Mobrup <laughs> itself, although it's in the middle of everywhere, it's on on the way to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you get to Mobrup, and then. There's just bush until you hit the ocean, really. Well, nobody pops in on the way past, put it that way. They're, yeah. they're coming specifically to see you or somebody else in that yeah. area, which is which is special in itself. Yeah, so we don't have any through traffic. No, no. no. <laughs> um, so tell us about your experience. So everyone who comes on has generally got some experience in the country. Um, so tell us about your experience growing up in the country and growing up in Marlborough. Gosh, uh, it's... It's foundational to everything I do now, having that upbringing in the in the country and the freedom of being in the country, and um, it's been it's been something I've been thinking about recently. Around everything I did was involved around the farm and farming and farming people, and I think that's been a phenomenal grounding uh, for everything that I've done now. And I constantly reflect back on on that. Um, the, the values that you grow up with, the work ethic you grow up with. So uh, really, really fortunate to have that kind of upbringing. Um, and then I guess as the journeys continued, then also fortunate to be able to take it to other places and, and share my knowledge and experiences elsewhere with others that haven't had that opportunity. 
Um, and it's also made me very, very passionate about helping as many people as possible actually get that opportunity too, to have that involvement in regional and rural areas as well. Even though you grew up a farm girl, did you ever aspire to or believe you would have a career in, in agriculture or agribusiness? Was that always at the top of your mind? That It never crossed my mind once. I certainly didn't see, and almost back to what we were talking about before, I didn't see it as a career that I might have. I certainly, as I got older, I wanted to farm, but growing up I hadn't seen farming as such to be a career. Whether that's a gender-based thought, uh, thought process, I was also always um, brought up to believe that I could do anything the boys could do and my back and muscles probably <laughs> um, show for that nowadays. Um, so I certainly grew up being um, knowing that I was capable of doing anything. Had, did, I, did I see that as a potential career? Probably not. Um, saw other things as things I might want to do. But the career that I initially went into, uh, so I started out at uni as a primary school teacher, and the reason I decided to be a primary school teacher is I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew, knew that I wanted to live in the country. So I was like, rightio, well, let's look at careers that involve getting to live in the country and there'd be plenty of work opportunities for the rest of my life in the bush. So that directed me to primary school teaching, which um, which took me back to the bush. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, I think most primary schools in, in every country town in Australia would be killing for more primary school teachers yes. right now. Very, very much so. And nurses and lots yeah. of other roles as well. Yeah, I know. Mm. So it, the and also that would have been a bit unusual because I don't know if it still happened at the time, but nurses and teachers I knew used to have to do a country stint, didn't mm. they? Was mm. it part of the uni or after uni? You got two years. You had to do. A amount of time or years I in the country? I don't know if you had to. There was certainly, you you had more chance of getting a job. So it was very, certainly in, in my day when we left uni. Gosh, that makes me sound old, doesn't it? In my day. In my day. When Gosh. everything, like, like um, when Fergus, our youngest was young, he used to say, Dad, back in the old days when everything was black and white. <laughs> Things can still be pretty black and white. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, I don't recall there being anything hard and fast, but there was more chance of getting a job. So you knew of all the remote communities in Western Australia when you're at uni because you were thinking, I could get posted to any of those and I'm going to take it because back then there were also only a third of graduates were getting jobs. So if you were offered a job, it didn't matter where it was, you were going to take it. Because otherwise, you pretty much you sitting behind the next year of graduates. So I think there was yeah. that encouragement to go regional. So different to now. Like I was just saying, how really much jobs are. I mean, I heard the other day that a lot of resource companies are trying to recruit kids out of high school now. Mm. They're so desperate. Mm. So, but when we sort of left uni in the early nineties, it was like there was two hundred people lining up for every job that you went for. Yeah, it was yep. such a different world, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's one of the one of the things that drives me doing what I do now in making sure that anybody that thinks they might be interested in a career in agriculture, and even if they haven't thought of it, I'll plant it in their mind given the opportunity, is to actually make sure that industry draws them in and opens their arms and, and brings them into the industry because somebody else will otherwise because it's such an incredible um, market for employees at the moment that they will be courted, as you said, from from a early st even earlier stages now. So from a point of view for our industries, it's like well, we've got to draw them in and make them want to be working for us because otherwise somebody else is going to come through and sweep them up and offer them things. But if 
they've gone into a tertiary or or a vet course, TAFE course, whatever, with an interest in ag, we've got to keep pulling them through at our end to make sure they actually end up in our industry. Yeah, I was just um, talking with uh, a guest the other day and he made an amazing point and he said that these days that everybody, and quite rightly, and I think this, uh, are looking for purpose in their jobs, mm. right? And I think mm. this is probably the one thing, well, not just the one thing, but there's a something that the what I'd say the current generations coming through the workforce have got right mm. is they want purpose in their positions. And I think because... You know, some and sometimes maybe there's been a lot of purpose ripped out of jobs over the last 30 or 40 years. And he said, if you want purpose, agriculture has got it ready loaded. You don't have to go looking for it. You That's can, right. you can be a scientist, you can be a, you know, tr- a commodities trader, you can be a farmer, you can, you know, it doesn't matter what job you want. Agriculture has one of those for you with purpose. Absolutely. Exactly. And that. <clears throat> Uh, I think we've all got a lot better at reflecting on what our values and what's important to us and people are matching that with their career now. Um, And I have some random fantastic conversations with people that um, are looking exactly for that, a purpose. They want to be a part of a system that helps feed the world. They want to be and going, check, radio, Mm. bring it on. Um, Want to be part of looking after our land and looking after our people Absolutely, you can find a career there. And so there are some fascinating conversations with people that we've got to keep on having to yeah. help people connect the dots. So that's what I think I I spend my life doing is, is connecting dots. And it's not a business model. Um, it's a very satisfying and it gives me purpose yeah. um, to actually say, hey, you should talk to such and such and it can happen at a party on a Saturday night or it can happen at a at a conference at the when you're getting a – yeah, a scone with jam and cream or something tasty that you shouldn't have in the middle of the day. Um, so that's really satisfying to help connect those dots with people that had not even considered yeah. that agriculture could serve their purpose. Yeah, definitely. I think um, who is it? Seth Godden would probably call you a, a maven. Mavens um, collect and share information, <laughs> and so that um, so yeah, it's it, you know it's definitely. That idea of connecting people in agriculture and giving them a purpose. Simon Sinek, I think, wrote a book around, or did, and it was a study around what motivates people at work. I think it was Simon. Okay, I might get it wrong. Probably that would be anyway, one of my favourite YouTubes. <laughs> but I hear the why yes. he did that great thing about why. Yeah, but this one was around what motivates humans to work. Um, so you mentioned pay, pay. So it was really interesting. They did, a, and he is referencing a bunch of study, but one of the ones is pay won't motivate you to work. So bonuses don't really work, those sorts of things. But the pay has to be right. Does it make sense? So the pay has to reflect your worth and it has to help you meet your, your needs, you know, your mortgage and all that sort of stuff. But it won't motivate you. Motivation, he worked out, was really comes down to three things, purpose, autonomy, and mastery so and he goes that's generally a combination of those three is what drives human motivation and so it was just interesting you can't pay someone to be more motivated that's right but you but you can give them other things Mm. and one of them is purpose obviously underpinned in that is communication isn't it 
Yeah. So it's actually having the conversation because what mo motivates you might be different to what motivates mm. me. So it's actually all about within a business having that conversation and regardless of what business you run to not make assumptions um, about what people's drive is going to be. And I think we tend to we tend to have a, especially growing up, let's say we all grew up in the country, so we it's, it's the world we knew and understand and we're trying to attract people from outside in, right? And we go, well, it's obvious. Look at it. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you like this? And they're <laughs> yeah. kind of like, I don't get it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, the way they see the world, the way they brought up their value systems, it might be completely different. So, like you said, it's behold on us to try and ex articulate why it's amazing mm, because it's not obvious. No, no, it's not. And and you can articulate it sometimes and then people have different learning styles too, so then it's you need to find other ways that it's going to resonate um, to actually, uh, it's it's like the whole. We'll come down and and work for a day, or or come to wherever you are and be in the business, be in the environment for a day, and because that's also going to give people insights too, isn't it? And it's also those paradigms, and I and I think, especially from attracting when you know in ag now we have to attract so many people from outside of agriculture because that's where all the people live. There's not many people in ag mm, anymore, mm. Right? so I think. Um, there's, I heard a um, quote the other day actually from a podcast I'll release later is something only 2% of people even in agribusiness are farmers. Mm, yeah, right? that doesn't surprise me. So most people live in the city, even in agribusiness, yeah, right? Yeah. So take people to a farm, and I found this, you take people to a farm the first time, like a modern farm, and they're going, wow, this is not what I pictured, mm. right? And, you know, the technology and the, the, the infrastructure and the systems and mm. – and most people have never really – there's a picture of agriculture, which I think yeah, was set sometime yeah. in the 20s. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right? Which we love to trot out every now and then when we put pictures on the front of everything. But oh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what it looks like mm, in reality. Yeah, yeah. And I think social media is a fantastic vehicle. All the different platforms are out there. The algorithms – are such that people are still not necessarily going to see that. So we think we've got a whole lot of cool stuff out there showing what farmers do, but we're actually talking to ourselves based on those algorithms oh, yeah. as well. So it's utilising social media in a smart way to actually get – so for those people that you can't get out onto a farm to actually see all this cool stuff that we do, yeah. um, that we're somehow infiltrating them in, a, in another way using yeah, social so media and algorithms. So. Yeah, so how would someone – in Perth, Melbourne or Sydney find themselves on an agricultural social media feed. And the question is how, but it's also well, why. What what will stimulate them to think, oh, I wonder um, what kind of machinery is used to do this or, or I wonder, wonder why or how um, this – Particular genetics are, are bred for this for bred for this loaf of bread. That's awful, isn't it? I think the only social media feeds my boys watch that have got anything to do with agriculture is little kids being run over by dogs and sheep. Really, oh, which is not great. <laughs> That's not the kind of messages we want out there. No, it doesn't happen a lot. Now you had a non-standard farming father, a bit like I had. I had I had a father <laughs> who wrote who ran sheep and wrote software. You had a father who was a member of parliament. I certainly did. Um, so. And Bill was a member of, for what, 22 years? 22 years, that's 22 right. years. Mm. Do you know what I always remember as a kid? You were the only person I know who called your mum and dad Bill and Margot. And I was going, that's so strange. What about <laughs> mum and dad? Well, even, it was even stranger. It was mum and Bill. Oh, mum and so Bill. No, it wasn't even Margot and Bill. It was mum and Bill. Mum mm, and Bill. So yes. dad was always Bill. I remember getting asked in primary school if I was adopted um, because I didn't call my dad 
dad because he's not. Well, he's Bill. <laughs> <laughs> now, growing up, you know, you grew up on a farm in isolated mob rut, but you, um, your dad was a, a long-term member, um, a MLC. MLC? M- yes, a- MLC. MLC. Yeah, member of the Legislative Council. Yeah. Um, now, you have a really, during farming, but certainly post-farming, uh, let's call it, have had a very public life and a very much a life around giving. I look through all the things that you're involved of. It's all about giving back and getting involved and making a difference. Do you think growing up with a father who was a member of parliament you know, influenced you in any way to in even subtly to the career that you now find yourself pursuing? Mm, it's a really good question, David, because I've reflected a bit on that um, and thought absolutely. And and my mum was president of the West Australian Red Cross as well. And there's mm. that's that's a very, very giving role too. So and when Dad slash Bill went into Parliament. Um, he went there as a community service because he wanted to make a difference. It wasn't a career move. It was a farmer that was wanting to um, to give back and make a difference for the industry um, that he loved and grew up with. So very much I think it comes back to our upbringing and the values that we're brought up with. I don't feel it was a you should do this and you should do that as far as giving back. They just did. And the whole community just did. As you said, we, it's funny when you said well, we were isolated. I never felt isolated. Um, and when I was there as an adult, it yeah. was very different. Growing up in Mobrup, I certainly didn't find it isolating. Well, there wasn't really. There no, was a lot of families. We that's had, right. We had our own little hall. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, so, like we did, you know, events at the Mobrup Hall. Mm, we had a tennis club, a badminton club. twenty first there last year. Um, well, <laughs> last year, of course. <laughs> In your dreams, Aaron. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it was absolutely. So, yeah, funny that you say isolated, which, yes, I look back and go, yes, it was. Um, at the time, it wasn't. Um, so that... Growing up, the the values of you get home on the school bus after terrorising the younger kids on there um, <laughs> and you get off, you grab afternoon tea and then you jump on the motorbike or out in the ute and you go and help feed the sheep or pick rocks. It was all new country. Mm-hmm. Um, so you did all those things and then you came home and had dinner and did your homework and did it all over again the next day. So that's never never did, never did saw it as anything different and that's that's the values that you grow up with of all pitching in and making a difference and getting yeah. getting shit done. And getting like. shit done, yeah. And if you're in Mobruff or Cojonut, there's going to be a stretch on a committee somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> there still is. Still is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I can't remember in our local fire, fire brigade, I always think Digby, your brother, was like – the head of the fire brigade for all I can remember. <laughs> it's probably Bill before that. So, yeah. so and my grandfather actually he was the person that introduced the old C B radios into the fire brigades in Western Australia. Mm. Um so the first the advent of, of the two way radio for communications in fire brigades. Yeah. And then I've got my sister over in the neighbouring town that also um is in the centre of community and Making a difference and putting a hand up. I guess that's. I guess that's the big thing I see. It's not waiting to be asked. It's actually putting a hand up because you see that there's a there's something that needs doing, and that you can't wait for somebody else. To, like if I sit around waiting for other people to do stuff, it never happens. So I don't think you have the patience, do you, Aaron, to wait for other people to. Very patient person, David. <laughs> <laughs> what I what You've I you've got feel, things to do. Oh, absolutely, things to do, places to go, people to meet. The, when I do it, though, I always always want to bring along a crowd 
So yeah. I never want to be charging ahead just just going off and doing it because um, there's some stuff I don't like doing. So then you bring in other people that love it So that and there are lots of people that love doing the bits that I don't like mm. doing. Um, so then you, then what this whole journey has given me is an amazing group of friends as well that you've mm. developed over time in doing those things and seeing what whether it's a community or your industry or a group, whatever it is, needs. And then you just go, hmm, who else is around here that might like to join me? And, yeah, let's go. Well, let's talk about joining things. Mount Burnett Foundation. Burdette. Burdette, sorry. Burdette. Do you know what? I was at my desk today and I go, David, don't get it wrong. I got it wrong. Mount Burdett Foundation. Now, you've been the chair of the rural, now I'll get this right, the Rural and Regional Advancement Committee for the foundation. That's right. For what, yep. three years or so maybe? Probably is getting, I think it's, yeah, it's getting up to three years now. So mm. tell me about this. I know the foundation I think started in Esperance or yeah, something. So, yeah. so tell me a bit about the foundation but especially, and also in particular the, the role your committee plays within the foundation. I'd love to mm. understand it a bit more because yeah. it seems like it's really grown. It's, it's a become- phenomenal it's a phenomenal concept that Chris Reichstein, who is a farmer in Esperance, uh, he um, had terminal cancer mm-hmm. and so he knew he'd be leaving this mortal coil, as he called it. Um, and so he also had a very strong set of values about community and industry and was very passionate about the farming industry as well or the agricultural industry as a whole. And so he um, felt that when he moved on, what was going to happen to his farm, you sell it and that's it. Um, Or what he decided to do is actually leave the farm to a trust, so a charitable trust, Mm -hmm. and then the profit out of that charitable trust part would go towards a um, an Esperance Community Foundation, which is part of the Mount Burdett, and then part of it would come to the Rural and Regional Advancement Foundation. So that farm is a working farm. It's managed by a farm advisory committee. Um, and you had Andrew Fowler on the other day uh-huh. who chairs that advisory committee. Um, and that's a great podcast, by the way. I really, really enjoyed that because I've known Andrew for a while. It was really, you always learn something new of what he and Mari are doing. Um, so the while the farm is still there, there will still be an income in order to make an impact in the Esperance community and throughout regional Western Australia at the same time. And there is nothing, it's an amazing privilege to get to help work out how we're going to distribute those funds. So One of the benefits out of it was Chris was around to help formulate what it needed to look like. So we've got a founder's intent that he wrote um, and everything revolves around what he wanted and what his vision is. So to get to chair that foundation, it's it's an absolute, um, it's an absolute I go to use the word humble, but I listened to a podcast the other day that was talking about um, hum- the word humble and the use of it or not. So I've stopped using it, but I'm still struggling well, for a new so, one. So you're not allowed to use it. Mm, so it's lowering, yeah, it's lowering the value of something. Anyway. Grateful? So grateful, yeah. That's, yeah. So whatever the word is, <laughs> it is we're, very we're gonna, cool. We're going to workshop How it now. cool. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we can. Over a wine maybe. It's incredibly powerful to get to be the somebody asked me recently why I did it um because it's voluntary and I'll I'll do it for as long as people are happy for me to do it um because I guess I've spent a lifetime seeing things that could be done in regional communities around WA and 
you don't necessarily have the ability to do it. There are funding mechanisms. It's hard to get funding. It's hard to get people. And what Chris has left us with is the financial means to actually do those things. And in so so what drives our committee is making sure that it is as easy as possible while still maintaining suitable governance around the funds because that's crucial, is how can we make it accessible to every person in a community to actually benefit and then make an impact in their communities. So that's an absolute driver for our committee is make sure that it's reachable so it doesn't become a a bureaucratic machine that it will have impact and that was what Chris was really passionate about. It's really worthwhile people watching his video. There's a seven-minute video on the website. Okay. Um, We'll put a link to that in that. Yeah. It's great just watching it and then you get a real feel for, yeah, because he was still around to do the video to talk about what he was going to do because he knew he was heading off. That's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. So what sort of things um, does the the organisation fund or has it funded in the past or...? Um, it's the Rural and Regional Advancement Foundation part um, that is purely around capacity building. So okay. that's about building skills, experiences, knowledge in our communities. So um, that's not the overarching whole foundation, but the Rural and Regional Foundation mm. Advancement Foundation is is about the people because it's not about building infrastructure. It's not about buying equipment. It was all Chris was really big on people. It's actually about empowering. People, people in make our communities. Stamps. Absolutely. It's just that's, yeah, without without the support of our people out in communities and, and as we touched on, they're getting less and less. Some of those people have really, really amazing ideas how to make it more and more though to actually attract people into their mm. communities too. So the best people to do these things is the people that live in those communities themselves. So sometimes people in a community, I'll, I'll drive anywhere to talk to somebody in a r- rural town to yeah. go, how could we fit? How can we get funding? And I'm like, righty, I want to help you be successful in this. And so when I have those conversations with people, they're going, oh, what sorts of things? And I was like, you live in the community. You guys are the very, very best people. And I say guys, it's non-gender specific. Yeah. So, um, Generic guys. You are the best, best people to know what you need. So you tell me the sorts of ideas you've got and I'll tell you if it's going to fit or not or let's workshop it a bit and see how it might fit. This reminds me because you're talking about uh, the interview with Andrew before. And one of the things I was so impressed um, at the end, towards the end of that podcast, he was talking about the work that him and Murray were doing in Conding Up, talking mm, about investing in yeah, a community. Yeah. Um, and if you want to listen to that, they've doing it. And listen the, all the way to the end. The thing I've noticed with your podcast is they they're great at the beginning, of course, and the real diamonds come out towards the end in a lot of podcasts. Isn't that the real con- in any conversation though? That's true. That's right? very true. It's like. Yep. Always, always saying with you, you know, when you have dinner with friends, all the best conversations have at the front door as they're leaving. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, before I, they're leaving. <laughs> it's like before I go. Yeah, did you hear? It's actually interesting because one of the groups that I used to manage, we used to it was a statewide pasture based group, and so people had come from a really long way away, and they weren't paid. These were farmers yeah. and researchers that took their time out of their jobs to devote to this grower group. And so when we did get together, I'd always make sure that it wasn't just a day meeting where people have zoomed in and zoomed out. We'd stay overnight because we were going to have to at some stage anyway. So I'd actually put the meeting over two days. So maybe start at lunchtime, finish at the following lunchtime because the absolute gems were over dinner um, when we everyone relaxed, had a nice steak or 
lamb, yeah. um, and a glass of red wine, and you'd actually sit, and in some cases sit up till 2 o'clock in the morning, okay. still talking about all the ideas and the concepts, and that, from an executive officer point of view, that's where I got the gold. It's, it's almost like you need to do a day of learning, then you need to digest it together almost, yeah. don't you? Like it's a, yeah. I think Harvard and a number of those programs, they're, they're all residential programs, mm. and I think mm. that's part of it is yeah. that you're putting a bunch of leaders doing a program together for how many weeks or months. But, but even though they live, they have a house, they might have a house in the next town, but yeah. the program's residential. Well, I did my Australian Institute of Company Directors course that way, five days together, a group of women in Canberra, and it was so much more powerful. And you also develop a whole network. The challenge that we have, though, David, is people don't have time um, in rural areas and, and probably outside rural areas as well. Yeah. No, I'll rephrase that to we don't make time um, because farming businesses, small businesses, family-owned businesses don't necessarily, they're doing so many things within their own business and their own communities that it's a real struggle to get people to be able to have the time to do that because if they're doing that residential um, experience, it means something else isn't happening. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the, it, it's it's one of the things I really like to reinforce in our industry is if somebody is off doing something, there's another person back at the farm or back at the business, whether it's a tyre service or whatever it is, somebody else still getting those things done because it's not necessarily another person in that business to do it. I think in all businesses we struggle with this concept that thinking is valuable, right? Mm. So we tend to have this idea that if we're, we're doing something, mm. that, we're, that we're adding value. Yep. Right, yep. but if you and even if you understand this intellectually, it's still hard to dis create the discipline to do. But maybe just doing nothing for two days and just thinking about a problem yeah. might make you another two hundred grand. I had right, a, but yeah. it's hard to then justify, justify that to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I had a um, realization: the Australian Rural Leadership Program was great for making you stop and put value on the time to reflect, which I'd never. Um, that was actually my one of the big parts of that program is is getting out of your comfort zone, and um, it took me a while to work out getting out of my comfort zone was actually to stop and be still. And it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean not do stuff? And one of my reflections around that is I love driving. Like I will happily go for a drive anywhere. And um, I worked out that one of the reasons. So when I when I moved to the city and I wasn't doing fifty thousand k's a year anymore, which is probably quite a small amount for some people listening, yeah. and might be a huge amount for others listening, then when I stopped doing that, I found that I was no longer having the creative thoughts that I used to have professionally, and so um, I was just going, "Oh, what's going on? I'm not not doing that anymore." And I realised that I'm not. I was driving half the amount of time or I, I started flying more for um, industry commitments, less than more um, less so than driving. And when you're flying, you keep working because you've got your laptop there. And so I actually realised that driving is my thinking time and then once I stopped driving, I stopped giving myself that thinking time. But the irony is that the reason I was comfortable with that is I still felt like I was achieving something because I couldn't possibly sit down for four hours, which would be the length of time it took to drive from Mobra up to Perth and just do nothing and think or just listen to music. Couldn't possibly sit down and do that, but I could if I was driving and yep. suddenly it all seemed okay. So you say, I'm going to go for a drive. What yeah. do? I, I have to... Oh, I've done that. Living in the city, I've actually got, gone, I've just, my brain's not clear. I just want to go and think. And I've 
earlier on, I did literally get in the car and drive for an hour and a half out of the city, like mm-hmm. out of the city, like driving in the city didn't give me my clear thought, get to Armadale and drive for an hour and a half, turn around and go back again. Might not be the most environmentally friendly answer. Um, but that's what I felt like I needed to do. So I think we, you're absolutely right. We undervalue that being still and reflecting. And I think this is someone ever asked me, what do I miss about farming? And I always say that I don't miss crutching wet sheep in the rain. Come but, on, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> but I do miss what I, what I used to call drenching time. So we used to have 15 to 20,000 sheep, I can't remember at the time. So drenching took a long time, mm. right? And so we used to start at 4 a.m. because of the heat and probably drench until 11. And that was just all that time. You may have had the radio or the cricket on or something. If I was probably Usually we used to finish before the cricket even started. But, um, but you'd be in your own head for the whole time. The same. I used to love walking behind sheep for four hours mm, and mustering with the yeah. dogs with no car or radio. And even my father used to write nearly all his software while not in the office. He used to write it in his oh, head right? while doing farm jobs, mm. right? And I said, so what I found exactly the same. When I moved to Perth 23 years ago, I feel like you never have quiet in your head anymore. You've lost that thinking time. So like you said, you've got to deliberately create it. So, for example, I went and put the radio on the way to work. Mm. Because I know, and it always takes about, I always find that you've got to push through that you've got 10 minutes of boredom mm. and then your brain goes, all right, yes. I'll start thinking now. Yeah, we're not, be, we're, not, we're not very good at being bored, are we? Well, no. I, I refuse to be bored. But you've got to sit through boredom until you start being creative. It's like it's a weird barrier you've got to put. <laughs> anyway, um, I just want to go back to, circle back to rural and regional towns. You know, I was talking about, we and we got sidetracked when we were talking about um, Andrew and Connie up. And when you and I were talking before and talking about Mobrup, I've talked to so many guests about this, like the decline in country towns across Australia, but certainly across the world. I imagine this is a global phenomenon um, as uh, agriculture consolidates um, or amalgamates. So, um, but we, you know, the the idea, what uh, Andrew and Mari inspired, and go, wow, this is doable. Like they've, you know, they've, done that levy they've done a bunch of other stuff they've got funding and they're really investing in their town and it and you said to me on the phone it's just like our old progress associations yes that's right, right. yeah they've yes. got the world's best beach not far away I've got yeah to they say. do <laughs> we won't we won't mention the fact that they're near surf <laughs> and <laughs> literally is the world's best <laughs> yeah so that you yeah, we talk about it, it's eight hours from perth but yeah have you been there oh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so are the seychelles <laughs> Not not a match for Wharton Beach. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but but at the same time, it's this. But I I love this idea when you said progress association. That's the thing. Our community, like many communities across Australia, especially in Western Australia, even we're in the age group where our parents were still clearing land, and every everyone was a new landowner, and so you had a progress association that was about building community, yeah. and it was like building the hall and creating a club and doing this. Even and, um, burning, like, because we were clearing. Yeah, we'd come together. Days, and come together because somebody needed to um, needed to do something on their, their new land, but they needed the whole community be, to yeah. be there to help. Yeah, clearing fires. I remember my, our whole 70s, and you and I probably played on the sidelines of clearing yeah. fires our yeah. whole life. So, yeah. you know, there would have been 40 or 50 fire units turned up from the community. You know, food would have been put on. We would have 
torched <laughs> two or three hundred hectares of um, rows of um, pushed down trees and so all in a controlled manner with wildlife corridors still maintained. <laughs> seriously, like yeah. it was really clever. Remnant vegetation. It was very clever clearing. It was done with a lot of for- lot of lot of foresight. Yeah, and a lot of old fashioned stuff like clearing to the contour, and, mm, which seem like really modern concepts. Yeah, now. Absolutely, it was. They were yeah. The vision for what the land needed was really. But that community and that progress association got me thinking. It's almost we're almost back there again. So it's almost like you know now you might have a community with sometimes seven to twenty just farmers in that community left. In your mob up, there's probably three or four really where we grew up. So it's almost now like if you want, and our mob up's too small. But let's say Kojinup or you know you know a, a smaller town you now almost have to deliberately invest. Mm. Like it doesn't just – because eventually the towns just took over. They developed their own economy and yeah, yeah. you no longer – I mean, you had to maintain clubs and stuff, but the actual economy of the town you didn't really have to do much with, mm. did you? And I think there's there's less people to do the jobs and there's volunteer burnout is real. So you have yeah. to get smart about it as well to go, right, yeah, we, we can't keep going like this because it's the same you – know, I always was willing to be when people go, it's the same people doing stuff. It's like, well, I'd rather be one of those same people always doing stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's a limit to, to how much. Do. And mm. then um, other pressures start taking time as well. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's whole families committing as well to yeah. building those communities. And so that's why I love being able to go out and talk about the foundation to people because a lot of the time people have got the ideas but they, because we need to be get, getting smarter at doing it and maybe it involving less people or bringing in people from somewhere else to come in and help do it, then we can help that happen. Because I often say to people, you don't even necessarily need to think of something new. You could see something that's working in another community mm. that is really effective Bring them over to your community to come and talk about how you did it and what were some of the pitfalls learned from each other. You don't have to start from scratch. There are communities. There's one community over in, I'm not sure if it's New South Wales or Victoria, um, where there's a, um, a town that was struggling to get baristas, but there was a lot of retirees in town. Oh, yeah. And they didn't want to mess with their pension, obviously, um, but they were more than happy to learn a new skill and loved to go and have a chat. So they got trained up as baristas in their local coffee shop. They'd come in and do two or three hours, have a chat with all the people that came. I thought, what a great concept of utilising people in the community that they didn't want to be standing all day and they couldn't do 12-hour shifts. They're happy to come in and put a stool in front of the coffee machine um, and, and learn how to do it really well and have a chat with the locals, those sorts of ideas. It's like nobody needs to necessarily come up with anything new. Just scout around, have a look see what somebody else is doing. And I think that's another thing. It's like um, I've actually met a few people who've retired from corporate jobs here in Perth. I've got a great new term. It's called rewired because I'll never retire. Yeah, rewired. I'll just keep doing stuff. What they're doing is they have retired or stopped their previous corporate Mm -hmm. career and no longer technically, you know, they're they're self-funded, I suppose you'd call them. But they're working harvest and seeding, driving headers and tractors now because there's only so much golf you can play, right? <laughs> it's one of the things that we identified with um, with the foundation is one of our um, selection criteria 
is that the people that apply for the funding need to be or be assisting early mid journey people. Um, and so I often say to people that doesn't just mean young people being early mid. And the reason uh, that we honed in on that is when Chris was still with us, we were going, well, where are the gaps in communities? And they go, well, if you've been, if you're at a senior point in your career, then it's not so hard to get money to get training and so on because you're proven and yeah. people, your, your business will back you and, and sees value in it. But somebody early or mid into this, like, oh, it's a little bit harder. So I went, well, let's back this because sometimes they're the ones that just need that extra bit of confidence in themselves or an extra skill. And so then we go, anybody can be, you could be early, mid-career, David, mm. um, because it's not age-based. So then it's somebody that wants to learn a new skill. So they've been an accountant for all their life. Yeah. And then they go, okay, I've had that part of my journey. I really want to learn to become a yoga teacher, for example. And they go and, and learn those skills in order to have an impact in the community to help, in that case, well-being of their community members, that kind of thing. So that's why we honed in on that early mid-career part to actually get people to think about what's an, what's what are some skills that we need in our community in order to do X. And also it's harder. So the traditional access to agriculture is from outside in is now, especially farming, is the barrier is very, very high. Mm. So you may have been an accountant in Sydney your whole life but always dreamed of being on mm, farm, right? Yeah. And so if someone said, okay, you, we're happy to train you yep. and, and give you, you know, you now can take this risk, maybe your kids have left school or whatever, it's almost a perfect opportunity. So I can do what I want to do at 18. Yeah. I might be now 52 or whatever. Yeah. And looking for something to stimulate you. And I mean, certainly from our point of view, it's only for community impact, yeah. not individual businesses necessarily, yeah. um, but actually showing what a difference it makes. But, and how cool is that to get to a stage in your life that you go, you know what, I've really enjoyed doing what I've been doing for a long time, or it's been really I haven't enjoyed it, but and I'm glad I've got through it because I've educated my children or for whatever reason yeah. you've stuck with it. And then to um, move on and give something new a crack, I reckon it's, yeah. yeah. It's I, really tell you, I was listening to a story about Japanese salarymen, which are quite famous, and they had this concept, and I think it's changed in Japan a bit now, but they would work, do the, be the company man or the salaryman, as they call them, um, for their whole career. So they'd do the same thing as our our grandfathers probably well our city grandfathers would have done start at 18 yeah. stay at a company till 65 retire mm. go play golf but what japanese guys do is they then go and do their you know their ikigai or whatever they go and do the thing that they really want to do right so they end up going and doing um, pottery or craft oh, or woodwork really? or they, yep. they tend to go into doing some craft or artwork and they dedicate the rest of their lives to that yeah. and it's really interesting so there's this idea of I have my corporate life and then I have my the life that I was meant to do like wow. it's it's really uh you know and it's, I think it's a bit of a shame that you can't do both at the same time when I I think are we are we learning from that over time and getting better at well, I think, blend. It, yeah, and I think even in Japan, mm. from what I, I read an culture. article the other day, it is changing now. So mm. the concept of a lifelong salary mm. man, which is how they refer to them, yes, it's Japan. Um, they is changing. So, so corporations are having to just like companies here did. I don't know how many years ago have to adjust to the new reality, mm. yeah, right? Yeah. So those. You know, but they'll change slower in some cultures and it's not in others. But it's funny listening as as you were speaking and 
you obviously you picked up on it, but as you're speaking, and I automatically in my head go to say the women's role in those things and, and when women are in careers and so on, your story is about the way it was or a different culture, so it's very different. Um, and I think um, what I'm loving about in more recent times, it's actually the languages around the, the woman as yeah. a career as well and then the women as part of farming businesses and, and so on as well. So um, I, as I've shared before, I've learned to reflect as part of my leadership and go automatically go to go and women, but it's like wasn't the case back then. Um, so it's, yeah, just in my mind that, the, yeah, the little rabbit warren in my head goes to that. I reckon in many cases it was the case, but it just wasn't visible. So um, you, I don't know how you notice, but every time I'm asked to attend or speak at a farm business group, almost certainly 90% of the audience is female. Mm, yes. Right? Yeah. If I went to a field day, almost 90% of the audience is male. Not anymore. Not anymore. No, yeah, no, that no, used to be very... extraordinary, yeah. But well, it's I, always, extraordinary. I always found that like farming... So when when um, people have asked Nat and I how we work together, and I go, well, where we've come from, every partner's worked together. So male and females have always worked together in agriculture. And I don't know about every family, but it's the stereotype. Mm. More often than not, the ladies in the business have done more of the admin mm -hmm. side of the business, traditionally, or the yeah. business side of the business. Us guys are there to lift heavy things. <laughs> <laughs> but what's happened, as I've noticed, is essentially all the women in ag have almost owned the business, you know, this business side of ag, and that's become quite powerful. A lot of the groups, a lot of the driving of the you know, this this professionalisation of ag mm, yeah, is being female-driven yeah. as, you know, in, in part from my observing, observing rather. I'm not on the inside, so I can't talk to that. I think the physicality has been made easier as well with technologies mm. as well. There's no reason I've got, got friends who are out driving trucks for harvest and so on as well because it is made easier um, because our bodies are not necessarily made for lifting heavy things. Yeah. Um and but I've seen you lift we, we, I know, heavy pole doors at sheep on the back of you. Yeah, some of us took a while to learn <laughs> um, and suffering the consequences now. Um, I get really excited about seeing that there's literally nothing a female can't do yeah. in any farming business anymore. Um, I always giggle about – so back when I was getting involved off farm in industry things, so being involved in committees and going to field days and so on, and um, very, very few – uh, role models for me to look at who else was out there doing it. And um, I struggle with you can't be what you can't see because I did. Um, and there weren't very many other women doing, like if I went to a field day, I'd be one of the only ones, if not the only female, which which was cool. Like I, was, I had so many things I could learn and I giggled out. I often quite share, um, I quite enjoy sharing with people. They go, you know, the problem with gender diversity in agriculture, I have to queue for the ladies' toilets now. <laughs> It's so true. <laughs> and I giggle when I go to events and I'm standing in a big long queue and the blokes are just walking straight in and out of the cubicles or going to a tree. Behind, behind, <laughs> behind the rainwater tank. <laughs> and um, I look at that and I, I smile to myself and go, how cool is this? Look at all Well, the these days when you have a field women. day, you probably have to get a whole lot of portaloos. Yeah, yeah. Before and you just had a rainwater tank and a few trees. And, David, I 
I would never have imagined that day. And so I love that my measure of gender diversity in the um, agricultural sense is around toilets. <laughs> it's kind of where my humour is usually. <laughs> <laughs> I always talked about, I was actually talking to um, um, some staff members the other day about country pubs. You don't, and I said, even they used to home in the city and they used to have like the number of bars. You used to have the front bar, the back bar, and the lounge bar. Yes. Right, and the front bar yeah. never has a female's well, toilet. And children weren't allowed to go in the front bar. No. Mm. Yep. But notice that, like even at the oh, Koji pub. I thought the, of that. You're right. That's at the, the front bars don't have a female toilet. Never crossed my mind. They're You're always right. somewhere near the yeah, back of the pub in the lounge. They yeah, they still are. Wow, that's, yeah, never, never crossed my mind. Whereas I was at a restaurant yeah. on Sunday night and they no longer have gender-specific toilets. Mm. They just have toilets mm. yeah. where they're all shared. So that's why I love in the agricultural industry is it's now it's one in all in um, and embracing of of anybody. And and that goes to um, skills and interests and abilities too. Mm. I'm, I'm mentoring somebody at the moment that doesn't have an agricultural background, really excited about being part of the industry. We need to help somebody like that that has skills that aren't agricultural but some amazing other skills, um, help them with the ag stuff because that's the stuff you can teach. So, you know, as any business owner, you say, well, I can um, I can teach any skill but I can't teach attitude. So you're yeah. actually looking to employ people that have got the good attitude, which is no different in ag. So it's like there's a whole lot of people out there with an amazing Attitude and also going back to the Simon Sinek about purpose. They've they've driven with a purpose to want to work in our industry. We can teach them the ag parts. Like I, a bit tough to um, teach all the acronyms, but we can we <laughs> no, can work on that. Mind you, I always say our company has the has a word. We have a accounting um, software and agriculture, and they they're all so acronym laden. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, like so. But okay, and as was new, do can I point out? <laughs> The um the we're talking about attracting people and giving them the ag stuff, but also breaking down those pre, those assumptions around ag, like lifting heavy things you mentioned, right? You know, and especially in the days of OHS, people go, oh, you know, well, girls can't lift the things they need to an ag. Well, you shouldn't have been lifting them in the first place. Well, nobody should probably have been lifting the 120 kilo weight. Yeah, no, well, just get something ran. to lift it. Mm. You know, yes, like, yeah. and that's the thing. If if a, a lady, regardless of strength, couldn't lift, let's assume they couldn't lift that thing, well, then no person should be lifting that. Mm, yeah, and that's what I love about where ag and, and the general tech world is going. What's the problem that we're trying to solve? So it actually ends up revolving around what's the problem and then working from there. And so when you can you can introduce anybody into our industries, when you go and like you put a farmer in a room, you go, what are if you're using the lift heavy things yeah. analogy um, or reality, yeah. um, that's the problem. I really struggle because I need to do this. And then you put in a room of people with a computer software background or a yeah. design um, software design skill and they go, oh, well, have you thought about doing this? And, of course, we haven't in the agricultural area because we either didn't know existed, didn't know it was possible, hadn't thought about it because we're too busy thinking about what else we need to do. Or even preset assumptions. Like, uh, here's a good example. With automation, um, the, the, we're, 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 we're moving towards automation of farm machinery, right, or autonomous, fully autonomous. And everyone had this thing in their head, oh, my God, can you imagine this massive header with a 40-foot <laughs> front walking around autonomously? But then you look, you look at this work that they've done at Swarm Farm and a pl other places around the world, and they go, well, if you don't actually have to have someone in it, 
why do you need such a big machine? Why can't you have 30 little ones? Mm, and yeah. he goes, oh, never really thought of that, right? Oh, the, the so big- you don't need a big machine anymore. The only reason it's big is because you have one operator. Yeah, and you also aren't limited by time because it blows my mind. It's so cool when you think about a paddock that may have 15, 20 of those forms of robot without little saying a robot. brand name. Um going around that paddock 24 hours a day. So yeah. they just they they do shift, they recharge themselves when they need to. Yeah. Who would have thought? And then I love thinking, so what's the equivalent for the livestock industries? So what's the smart tech out there that can help us think differently as well with some of the more labour-intensive um, Someone will eventually invent doing. a sharing machine. They've only been trying for 50 years. Do you know what? They, <laughs> I, my, my absolute... Disruptive technology in my mind is virtual fencing, and so um, is it successful in shape yet? It can be. Um, Is it not yet? Um, That's another rabbit warren, which (laughs) I gladly go down. Um, But the reason I bring it up is to go. I read something a while back when I was more deeply involved in the livestock industries, and somebody said, "Oh, that was tried fifteen years ago, and it didn't work." And I went, "That's." Correct. That's a valid view. And I look and go, yeah, but the technologies that we have now are not but. So, yes, and the technologies we have now, maybe there, maybe we need to actually revisit this because it's still a pro- whatever the problem is that was a problem back then, we've still got the problem now. So what technologies are – there's so much more out there now that we sometimes can revisit something is if we focus on what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And, you know, the problems, and I always say, and because obviously we're in software, I was just saying the problems, look, people have new solutions to things and new ways of doing things. But look, look at what we do, which is essentially a, a financial management. The mechanics of finance haven't changed in thousands of years. Right, so the problem we're just um, you making you're learning and looking how to solve the problem, but the problem is almost the same, right? So the same with these problems on farms. So use of land management units, or you know the, the or even the ideas. I remember Einstein worked, and they always say that he got so many ideas because he worked at a patents office, yeah, right? And there's so yeah. many patents in the patents office which are brilliant. Mm. But the technology is just not good enough yet. It's not there yet. Yep, that's right. right. But the yeah. idea mm. is just sound as yeah, absolutely. right. And so sometimes you just got to go back and go, gee, that was a really good idea in 1975, yeah. but they just couldn't pull it off. And isn't that so? When you think of diversity, age diversity is so important as well. So you've got that, got somebody that's got that new knowledge, then also the person that can see. Um, what the problem still is or or what's tried, as long as everybody keeps talking about it and is open-minded. Because I, I was like you. My brother and I tried strip grazing forever with you. Yeah. <laughs> and hoggets just love running through a temporary fence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's um, it, I've I've learned so much from from early adopters of, of research. I remember standing in, in your paddock the first time I'd ever seen canola grazed. And it was down to the ground and um, we're all looking going, oh, geez. And I reckon your family were also going, oh, I don't know if this is going to come back or not. And it did. And so many learnings out of that. And I think the other thing that I love that um, the farming community does is people that are willing to share their mistakes and just go, whoops, (laughs) Um, got that wrong. And what have I learned from I was talking to a farmer years ago um, around pastures and he said, oh, we finally cracked it. It took us five years. 
but we've we've managed to do it. And I was like, wow, how did you, what kept you going to keep on trying for five years until you actually managed to achieve that to a point where it was adoptable? And they were like, I knew that somebody else was doing it. And th- that person was sharing their knowledge. It's like, how cool is it that there's that sharing of ideas? And they were just determined. They're like, this, is, this has to be able to work and I'll just tweak things year by year, but five years before they actually but managed to do it. But there's thousands of these little experiments happening across. Mm. I was talking about grow groups the other day and mm. the power of grow groups mm. and this thing. Because essentially you've got maybe 20 to 100 farmers all experimenting either individually yeah. together. Great. I mean, farmers are the ultimate inventors, aren't they, yeah. like, and engineers. And having support around that, like we used to have a great sheep consultant, which you knew was Kevin Bell, mm. and my brother and I were in hinds a little nuts. We used to go, for example, we started grazing. A <laughs> <laughs> Great. We wanted to graze wheat and barley stubbles, but we, we ha- and we had all these sheep, but we – the time involved of putting them, you know, you used to put them on for an hour, take them off to try and stop them getting acidosis in their stomach. Yeah. And we went to Kevin and go, oh, God, we don't want to do that. And I go, there's got to be a different solution. Yeah. We can just bung them on. And, he, and, and so being a, a vet and a sheep scientist, he'd go away and he came back with a solution. He goes, oh, people do this with the pig industry all the time. Yes. So yeah. we now it seems it's badass these days. So all we'd do is we'd bring in our 4,000 hoggets and drench them with antibiotics and chuck them straight onto barley stubbles <laughs> and it worked a treat. Yep, yep. But, and then he would take that and go, okay, these are mad boys. Then yeah. the mob up did this and it worked. Do you want to adopt it or not? Bit different in my brother, <laughs> weren't we? Um, but, but I love that. But then someone else would do something else on their farm, and we'd learn from that. And that's yeah. what I loved about those. Often you get them around consulting groups, but sometimes in grower groups as well. And I'm still very involved in grower group land through my board role with the Grower Group Alliance. And the thing that the grower groups all over, like over 80 around the state, and the thing that they do so well is that collaboration between farmers and researchers and extension agents and and now the the ag tech world as well. Yeah. They're actually sitting together and doing that. And that's what, what grow groups do so well. And there's no vested interest people just wanting to do more within their business and, and help each other. It's a it's a phenomenal model. There's no model like it anywhere in Australia. And I think that's the big difference that I found from an urban environment. Well, there from- is around Australia, but not the lots and lots of small ones in the isolated pockets. And you would have found this, uh, now you're a Freo girl, but the, in business, in, in urban business, people don't share ideas like mm. they do mm. because we have competitors. So, so no one – so if farmers technically don't have competitors, you know, because mm. we're all selling our commodities to another, mm. uh, like a, a, you know, whoever it is, right? But we don't compete against each other. Yeah. So the, the the sharing of knowledge across farms yeah. is something that you never see in any other industry because everyone else holds that knowledge tight. Mm, yeah. And so which is why I think if you look at the only industry in Australia which has net positive productivity is agriculture. And I reckon that comes down to this free sharing of knowledge between stakeholders. Yeah, yeah I think that's a huge part of it and the, the closeness of the researcher to the end user as well so that the researchers are generally trying to help the producer do what they do more efficiently. Um, so whether it's through um, wheat breeding, so you're actually going, what is it? how are we going to help the grower increase their yield? 
So we need to breed varieties in order to do that. So those sorts of things through the whole of the supply chain is um, is really exciting, though. It is quite phenomenal. Now, talking about you're talking about young people earlier on, and you also launched a thing called Careers for You, a career pipeline program. Ag for you, Ag yep. for, Ag yep. for you. Yeah. Okay, oh, that's the second one I got wrong today. Ag number four letter U. <laughs> that's all right. Ag for you. I even wrote it down. Right. Oh, you even got in front of you, and you've got your glasses on. <laughs> Trying to say I'm old. All right. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dad, my, I talked to my father today who's 81 and he said, when I get old, I'm going to stop doing so much. <laughs> <laughs> so he's never going to stop doing so much. <laughs> well, the old bugger, he just went and he, I was talking to my mum the other day. He's just started, he's written two programs, one for the Rotary. So this is 80. He started up his software development again. He's written a software program to manage the Rotary Club and the Bowls Club. And apparently he started a whole new project with some a new code base the other day. So, Isn't that fantastic though? Yeah, so you're never too old. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, Act for You, careers program. Now, one of the things I got to you, first of all, you can tell us a little bit about the program, but one of the things that fascinated when I talked to you on the phone about it, this modern problem of university in the mm. fact that, that um, well, yours probably didn't, but my boys have certainly experienced, is you never meet anyone at uni anymore. Yeah, it's become really, really hard for um yeah, for the uni students because they've got other – not that we didn't have other things that we needed to do at the time um, – but the yeah the uni students have got a lot other lot of other pressures on them that are taking precedence of necessarily being at uni, and so they can actually be at uni without actually having to physically be there like yeah. like we had to. So um, yeah, it's a very different landscape. So I um, if if I step back, so two driven very different children of mine and and one studied in in one area um, and has gone into the physiotherapy line so it's been fascinating talking about those sorts of careers and then my daughter who um, did animal science studied animal science and came out with an animal science degree and so um, an honours one and you get to have conversations with your children as they get older about what career opportunities are out there and how information flows through and um, i observed with some degrees that it's actually really hard to find a job. If you're a physio or a lawyer or a doctor, then you put that in seek and up come all the jobs um, when you've done animal science or, or whatever or an ag science degree. Those sorts of things don't pop up agricultural scientist or an animal scientist necessarily. It's not necessarily easy to um, find the jobs. Um, but then also the unis are so, they've got so much to pack into a short space of time of when they've got the students there. So it's very hard for them to do everything that's required to bring somebody out at the end with the sorts of skills that industry needs. So years and years ago, I um, made up sheep camp. And so I actually wanted to help students learn the context of what they were learning at uni. So, for example, you'd you'd learn that um, worm eggs in sheep. So you'd learn about the science of that. Well, in a lot of cases, a lot of the students coming into these degrees didn't necessarily have an agricultural background and so on. So we need to create an opportunity for this. So I made up sheep camp. So the students had actually come down, drench a sheep. Um, Did actually, you make them do all the fecal count collection so, as well? Yeah, yep, yep. We went out and we collected um, collected sheep poo and we mashed it up and we did all the things that that I grew up doing. Um, 
and then, yeah, actually handling an animal, finding out how physically hard it is to drench a sheep. <laughs> and you've, like, you talked about getting up four o'clock in the morning doing a thousand. There's smarter ways of doing things now. But, well, we need those sorts of um, experiences in order for people to go, bugger that. I don't want to have to drench, drench. I won't get them all done before the cricket starts. Um, so, need a new way. So, without that experience of physically doing those things, I thought I wanted to create that. So, created a weekend. And um, so, students had come down and actually um, needle sheep, drench sheep, do mm. pasture counts. And also learn about the whole business of farming. Mm. So it's all very well that you're told that you need a certain amount of in um, in your in your paddocks for a yield. So well, how about the budgetary budgetary impact mm. that you might be told you need X amount of units? Um, your budget's not going to afford that. So you're actually so definitely the business side because it's not all just sheep and crops and tractors you and know so the, on. John Francis, I talked to him about how did you in the his. When I did his interview, and I said, John Francis has been a consultant in the East Coast for a long time, and I said he started off in agronomy. I'm trying to remember, but he got on farm and he goes, "Well, I'm advising these farmers on what to apply and what to do," but he goes, "I don't know if it's actually worth doing." Mm, like, and yeah. he goes, "I know from a production point of yep. view, it's a good idea, but yep. I don't know whether it's a good idea fi financially." And that mm. sort of led him into exactly what you're saying to go, "Okay, how do I get to understand?" What's the best financial advice I can give them, not what's the best agronomy advice because they're not the same thing. Yeah, and we need people to be in the industry thinking about that holistic approach. So so did sheep camp, that was cool. And one of the students at the time went, oh, this would be so good to be doing this. I wish there was something like this in cropping. And I went, oh, congratulations, you just invented crop camp. Um, <laughs> you can sign up for that. I just, we've just made that up. And then did the same in the horticultural industry, so did hort camp. Anyway, so then um, I did that for a few years and really, really satisfying, yeah. really valuable. And then COVID happened and so I was like, oh, okay, so I won't do anything like that anymore. And over COVID, going radio, so what can I do? And then I thought, well, we also have skills of needing to help students learn how to network into the ag industry and, and build their confidence to be able to have, have some confidence about breaking into our industry, especially if they didn't come from an ag background. But as one of the students said to me, he said, oh, I can talk farming anytime. Like I can rock up at a clearing sale or at the pub and talk farming. He said, I'm looking at a banking career. I don't know how to talk banking. And so just because they come from a farming background doesn't mean they necessarily have the confidence to move into a career still in the ag sector. So then um, so then I developed the AgView Career Pipeline Program where I could actually um, teach them online or bring people in to help them learn about emotional intelligence of why you're too scared to put your hand up to ask a question, um, what's, the, what's the emotion that's driving that, and so then – giving them the tools of how to address that emotion in order to, um, for example, make them brave to put their hand up and ask a question, not be uncomfortable that it might be perceived to be a stupid question because it won't, all those sorts of things. So um, so I did that for a couple of years over COVID and the one thing that was really missing was having everybody in a room together. And so then um, we've just, I've been working with Murdoch University this year and delivering it in person to teach them and also how to dress. I had one great student that said, oh, can I come and talk to the students because I just want to reinforce to them that um, he rocked up on his first day at work wearing a tie and he got paid out on for the rest <laughs> of the time in that particular, oh, I won't yeah. mention any businesses, but in that business, you don't wear a tie. His perception of coming across to give a professional um, a professional uh, look was to wear a tie. And he's like, I so want to tell them all that if you end up <laughs> doing that kind of job, you don't have to wear a tie. Um, so there's those sorts of things that 
we also learn from the students that, or the the new professionals, the new, the young professionals that have only been out of uni for a few years, come back and tell the final years what you've learned, what you did, what you did that you think you probably shouldn't have Do done. You know what the other so one cool. is? I always say to um, young people, and I said, never dress up. Again, if you're not from, say, a farm or a district, mm. don't try and dress up to match it. Don't pretend, right? Because if you rock up to a, you know, a farm, let's say in the Eastern Wheat Belt, and in a set, Aaron Williams top to bottom with a big hat on, and no, it's just <laughs> it's just got yeah, it's just got outsider written all over it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that'll be different for every area, isn't it? Like so, it, it matters. It's, it's it, it shouldn't matter, should it? But it, it really goes. Oh, you're not one of us. It it's so funny though when there's I'm still learning those things. Um, I was over at a at an event on the east coast at a field day and I had my I had my blundstones on. And so then I was standing there and there was only yeah, there was another person from Western Australia there, um, a person that was early career and I knew heard her last name, went, oh, you're from Darken. Yeah. <laughs> she said, yeah, I am. How did you know? It's going, well, your name's such and such. So I get yeah. just had a stab and I was right. And so she pointed out to me, she said, oh, it's pretty funny. You can tell who the West Australians are, can't you? Because the boots that we wear are completely different. Um, they, they're not as pointed as um, the farmers yeah. over there So on the on the eastern side of the country. So even the little things that I'm still going, oh, my goodness, so they are. I'm identifiable, but I'm not going to wear different boots. But it was just that It is really identifiable. So yeah. even in uh, when I talk to our marketing gang and they pull up a, a photo mm. from, from even an Australian site, and I go, oh, "That's that's not that's a wrong photo." Why? And I go, no overalls, no wheat behind the ear. Oh, mm -hmm. puffer jackets. Yeah, like yeah. there's a Tasmanian tuxedo. I've yeah, heard them called. Yeah, <laughs> and I go, "Where does that?" Oh, oh they're probably a poppy farm from Tasmania. Yeah, right. Funny, and I go, you know, and I go, yeah. "Oh, or oh, oh, yeah, that person." You look at a photo, and you go, "Western District, Victoria." Yeah, <laughs> you know, funny. Like, yeah. you know, people have a look. At least people in Queensland generally wear a big hat, so you can tell where they're from. But yeah. uh, but it's it, it, yeah, each. State in particular, but even some regions within states, and mm. I imagine the same as in all the other countries, yeah, have a yeah. look. And that's one of the one of the privileges I've had from working nationally as well is you actually learn all the different characters around and meet people from different areas. And just coming back to um, the other piece on people having confidence to in in themselves and not feeling like they have to dress differently. Um, the other thing that I learned from one of my speakers speaking to the students, I really, really loved because it kind of circles back to what I've always thought about having a um, having a father that was a member of parliament that you just go, oh, I can't go up and talk to them um, because they're a member of parliament. And I'm like, it's my dad. <laughs> like, for real? Just go and ask him. And that's what I often used to think when people would treat uh, – feel like they need to treat people differently. And one of the really, really valuable lessons that I heard one of my panellists say to my students is he's come up and talk to me anytime and he said, don't feel like you need to tell me what I already know. He said, don't feel you can't come and talk to me because you don't know what to talk to me about. I want to hear about you. I want to hear about what you're interested in or what you're studying. So that gave the students suddenly permission to go, I can go up and talk to anybody because I don't need to be worrying about, oh, my goodness, I don't know what they know because I thought that was a really valuable lesson and that they are somebody's father, mother, son, daughter. 
they are a normal person. So I always say to the students, just rock up, be polite and respectful, read the room, but just go up and have a conversation and and start with a big, brave, hello, especially, I'm such and such. Especially with the title. People always mention there's this gravitas with titles, you know, mm. you're the CEO or the whatever, yep. right? But you're so right. You know, this is, first of all, if they're in a big company, they're worried about stuff that, you, you know, they're just like you. We're all messed up. They're nervous. They're worried about this. They probably got something else they're worried about that they haven't achieved in their own job and you might be the thing that really makes a yeah, difference, right? Yeah. But again, as somebody's dad, grandpa, exactly. son, whatever, and they and they still have to go home and yeah. put the kids in the bath. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know Everybody, and, I, and sometimes love the break from this refreshing young person, new person, older person that's come and had a chat. That actually, I was going through the security at the airport numerous times but in this particular I was wearing my bright orange boots that I just love and so they're a little bit bright and so I had to take them off because they had steel in them and I took them off and and put as I got through security and put them back on the lady in front of me said oh I like your boots I said thank you governor and it was governor Sanderson which she said does a normal person I don't think I said governor actually because she was a normal member of the public yeah. but I knew that she was but it's like no she loved my boots and I was like oh, no they're cool aren't they and so we got chatting about my bright orange boots with a normal member of the public that I happen to know was the governor. And do you know, if people, what I found, if people are in public life, they love public. Mm, I mean, that's true. generally yeah. why yeah. they're good at chatting, you know, and they're generally pretty nice people, otherwise no one voted for them. <laughs> and also I think, and, and equally, even though it's people that aren't in public life, if you're a researcher that is really, really passionate about the work that you do, and they might not love situations where they have to talk to a lot of people necessarily, absolutely very, very keen to talk about the work that they're doing mm. and look for those opportunities because there are some phenomenal people up there. Or go to often say to people, as an industry, if there's a group of students that go along to one of our events, and I've been guilty of it, and I've gone, oh, what a shame, they're all over in the corner at morning tea talking to each other. I would used to not go over there and say, hello, I'm Erin here, come and meet some people or and break into that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also we have a responsibility to help people move in to the industry as well because it's not easy. So if it's a researcher that has some fascinating research and you've seen that that's who it is and you want to go over and have a chat and um, ask about what they do. And I think anyone at any level of any organisation or any position loves talking about what they do. Don't they? So, you know, so if you just ask people to drill deep and listen and then do act that active listening and ask people follow-up questions. Yeah, yeah. And they, they will open, always. That's right. And the, and the skill of asking an open-ended question. See, I'd rather find out about other people. So doing something like this, I don't, I'm not going to come that's talk about doing, myself. <laughs> mind you, this is why I love doing this is because I get to ask people about them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And the only difference now is I'm doing it with a microphone. That's right, exactly. I'd do it anyway. Sat, we've done this over coffee before in the past, so <laughs> yeah. except I'm not getting to ask you all the questions, so no. that, that sucks. Yeah, no, there's a power imbalance here. <laughs> <laughs> but really mm, this is the impetus accepted. for this, the, <laughs> this, this um, podcast was, was really I was talking is that I was having these conversations that you and I are having, mm. and it would have been at an ag event or afterwards or and I go, wow, other people need to know what Erin mm. knows, mm. right? Yeah. And yep. and often if you're not speaking a lot, say, in a in a big forum or maybe it was to 60 people, mm. 
if you can get that to more, that's part of this getting the communication out there. And Absolutely. Think. And and making use of people's time and getting these podcasts in front of people to get them to think of listening to a podcast or get that. So, so that's the challenge as well. There's lots of good information out there. So, you, so, it's, so that's the other thing you do in the car, listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, see, I'm a music tragic, so I, I, I end up just. Except for Boots of Flogging, of course you'd listen to that. That's right. Trip. I have been listening to that avidly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, let's finish off because we'll, otherwise people no, we will could talk all day. Oh, I know. Otherwise, people will turn us off if you haven't turned us off. So, thank you if you're oh, still I haven't listening. Started singing, so, that's <laughs> all right. so if you're still with us, thank you. Um, I want. I always finish with a couple, uh, three questions, right? So, first of all, farming myths. What is a a really, I suppose, a farming myth that you can think about that you'd like to go? Nah, that's um, that's BS. That it's a common. So you you'd come across it in urban areas probably more, Nello. Oh, uh, the farming myth is that it's um, farmers are only men. <laughs> I think that's I I yeah. The, there's lots of different ones, but. That would be probably the big one I really like to communicate. When I talk about a farmer, um, they come in all different shapes and sizes and, and genders and ages and all sorts of things. So a farmer is a farmer is a farmer. And whether they are doing the financial management of the business or if they are making sure that all the HR is in place, they are a farmer, as well as if driving the tractor or moving the sheep or or picking up parts in town, all of all of those people in my mind are farmers, and yep. so that's the myth that I see is that. Do you know the thing? I'd love to actually. I'll have to Google it, maybe put it in the show notes. But I found something the other day is that globally, mm-hmm. there's more women farmers than male farmers, which doesn't surprise me if you start to define a farmer in a way that I've just described. It's a bit like this idea in agriculture that you know, ninety-five plus percent of people in agriculture are not farmers. Mm, yeah, they do something else. So if you want an ag career, yeah. farming is a really small part of it. And even the um, average age of a farmer, um, because of the way that that farm own ownership is yeah. set up, the average age of the farmer, technically according to ABEDS, is a lot older than what the actual average age of the decision making people on the farm are. Yeah, and this almost be changed the average age of someone working in agriculture. I tried to get that put into a survey with a company that does surveys to try and actually ask that question as well. Um, I'll keep working on that. Yeah, there you go. I'll leave it to you. Young people, we talked about young people a lot in this podcast. So advice. So you've worked with a lot of young people in ag through your various um, roles. Someone comes up to you, you, you're at a conference, you know, next year and someone comes up to you and goes, Aaron, I, I really want to get into ag um, I want to have a career in agriculture. What, have you got any advice for me? Where would you ask them? I mean, that's a big question for you, and we could probably spend another hour on it. Mm. But what have you got any pithy advice for them that matters, do you reckon? I guess my question to them would be, what sorts of things are you interested in? And then they go, oh, I don't know, quite a lot of stuff. Or what has been your favourite unit at uni? Those sorts of conversations to get them to start to think about um what they're interested in because there are just so, like we touched on earlier on, there are so many different things. And and I guess the it's kind of what you asked but slightly being political and you did, I'd still want to reinforce to people and young ones coming along that if somebody else thinks you can do something, you probably can because it's often our own self-doubt 
or our lack of confidence or our imposter syndrome, whatever it is, mm. that limits us. And so anybody that comes up to me and goes, I'd really like a career in agriculture, I'm just like, well, apply for all sorts of things or here, talk to this person because I'll happily um, give out, like suggest that you look up this website or I'd always contact my contact first to say, do you mind if I give this person your number? Oh, look, I'm interested in becoming a livestock consultant. So it's like, well, what do you think they do? And then they quite often, well, I'm not quite sure. I think I want to do it. So we'll go and have a chat, do some work experience, spend some time. Nobody, I've never had anybody in my network say, no, I don't have time for a 20, 30-minute phone call with somebody to ask me some questions. But I think the next stage from that is just believing that if somebody else thinks you can do it, you can. And I still do that today. If somebody asks me, because um, a lot of what I do is voluntary, it's not not part of a job. So quite a broad portfolio of different things. If somebody else can see, uh, say the Council of Australian Arab Relations, for example, if somebody else can see that I could add value or that I've got something that could provide some benefits, then they're going, yeah, okay, well, there must be a drill down on that a little bit more. So yeah. That's a really long answer to your question. No, it's good. It's, it's, the, it's this idea that there is no magic source here, isn't mm, it? It's, mm. And also, I love the idea if you talk to people about how they started and what they do. You know, mm. let's say they were the whatever role you're admiring, right? Mm. That person at some point was at uni flipping burgers. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so they all started where you are today, right? Mm. And so their path will be – everybody's pathway will be completely different. Yeah. I was, I was at the, our boys' school um, breaking up the other day and they had a guest speaker and he – an investment bank and a bunch of other stuff. He was up talking about motivation, yeah, yeah. But I love it. And he goes, boys, I've got. And he was supposed to talk this, you know, success thing. You know, they do to leave us at school. Yeah. Anyway, and he kind of goes, "There's no secret, right?" <laughs> he goes, "He goes, I'll give you three things: make a decision, focus, work hard. That's it." Mm, yeah. Right. Yep. He goes, "That's all it is." He goes, "There's no hacking, magic, mm. strategy." special course, whatever, he goes, you just got to choose something. Mm. And making a decision can be one of the hardest things Getting to a, start with. Make a decision, so, yeah. focus on just that, yeah. don't dabble mm. and work really hard, harder than anyone else and you'll get it. Yeah, yeah. It's focus and curiosity. I think curiosity is a really important oh. piece because you, you then you're going to find out and, yeah, if, if there was a secret source, I would have thought it was – Curiosity. It's like, oh. oh, why is the old, why is that so? Because um, that just takes you in all sorts of places and all sorts of conversations. And then working out how to find things out with a, in an open ended questioning way rather than closed. Because otherwise, that just, yeah, that puts up the boom gates pretty quickly. Do you know what I tell my boys? I said, always be a scientist and never a prosecutor. So in a conversation, yeah. Be like an annoying toddler. Why, 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 right? <laughs> but not like that. People get offended a bit by why, but it's the same stuff is that if you're a scientist, you're always trying to find out the answer mm, to something. A mm. prosecutor's just always trying to be right. Mm, yeah, right? that's interesting, isn't it? Because they say like one of the one of the challenges of getting older is we stop asking why. And yeah. we actually actively try and tell our children to stop asking. Um, I'll never forget driving along the road and the kids and, and and being curious about how do they tie the knots back when we had bales, like round bales yeah. of hay and you'd had string around yeah. it. And one of the kids in the back seat going, how do they tie the knots in the string around the hay bales, Mum? Great question. Fantastic question. Me being made, made shit up 
and said, well, there's a little person. Might have you to say. Since then, I have Googled it and it is a mesmerising YouTube clip actually watching what happens in the inner mechanics, not that we have string around veils much anymore. Anyway, so curiosity, like how cool is that? Because I just drive along the road. How many times have I driven past a round hay bale with strings around or a, or a square one, rectangular, whatever. I'd never wondered that. So I think it's continuing to maintain that curiosity no matter what stage of life we're at. But even the entrepreneurs, I think people always say entrepreneurs are a thing and they're, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. No, you're not. I think people who are entrepreneurial or doing stuff like you're doing is just this insane dissatisfaction <laughs> with like how things are and, and they just look at something and go, why does that do that? Could it be mm-hmm. done better? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. It is it, I agree. Curiosity is the the magic source. And what I love is pulling that out in people. So I might not, you know, gadget or, yeah. or I will with people go, oh, my goodness, they would be so cool at that. I wonder if they've thought about that or if they've thought of talking to this person. Well, why so. do you do what you're doing? Most people go, oh, I've never really thought about it. You know? Yeah, see, I have because I've I've – focus on the things that I want to do now, they've got to serve my purpose, the things that I find are really important. And my purpose is I have had an, I am having an amazing journey in the agricultural sector. I want to make sure that there are similar opportunities for next gens coming through. So it's like, can't just finish here. Like there's lots of cool shit going on. So I want to make sure that other people are aware of that and can join the ride as well. So, so I think, yeah, there's Probably a few of us that do think about what's the what's our purpose? Why why do I do what I do? And it's like, well, I just want other people to get to have opportunities like this too. It is a good question too to ask yourself every now and then. Probably mm, good. Why might I often ask myself, "What on earth are you doing this time?" Sometimes it's just because I can. I always say, "Always, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but I'm going to work it out." Uh, yeah, <laughs> let me know when you get there. <laughs> Um, you know the last question. Um, no, I can't remember you because can't I know remember I listen la- to your podcast, but uh, I can't remember. Okay. Right. So I want to know what you do when you're not doing all oh. of this. So I warned you. Um, so, so yeah, what's who's the other Aaron? What do you do in your free time? Now? No, you, I'm not from, telling you. <laughs> ba- based on yeah. all the things that you do, you, you don't sound like you've got a minute in the day, but you must do something. What, what do you do in your downtime? Ah, okay. Um Oh, I do like this question because I've just started working it out. I do have um, my family and my friends absolutely come first. So anything I do, I drop things for them. And then the next bit is fun and fitness. So my four Fs. So therefore, in answer to your question, is I love ocean water swimming. And so I've started swimming um, as part of guided tours over in far-flung countries, so such as Croatia and the Adriatic wow. this year. So you can actually do a, a guided swim. It's called Swim Trek. And so you swim in random places in the world, only warm warm places for me. Um, so, so no dry a, suits in Antarctica? No, no way. <laughs> this reptile's not going in cold, cold <laughs> climates. Um, so, yeah, had a crack at Rotto and that didn't work out for me. And now it's just like, oh my goodness, there's you can combine a love of travel and of meeting people and having new experiences. I'm not a been there, seen that kind of person. Wow. It's like, what kind of cool things could I do? So um, so yeah, so that swimming is super and, cool. And so it address it helps me keep fit, healthy, I'm outdoorsy. And the other great thing about doing something like that is you meet like-minded people from all over the world with a similar 
passion and energy. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I've found is a is a thing that I quite like doing, which was hard to do in Mobrup, but very, very easy to it, make would, happen would in South Rio. Would, would the girl from Mobrup ever expect, seen herself travelling the world doing event-based swimming tourism. Never in a million years. I come from a family of open water swimmers, but I, they, they were people though, that I was inspired by and thought was amazing and how incredible is that. And, um, yeah, so well, now go. I get to do something fun like that. And and I love a coffee with a with a friend or somebody that's interested in something I'm interested in, so I'll do that. I'll make time to have and a coffee with somebody And when you're doing something like that, you probably anytime. make new friends that day that you're swimming with and Absolutely. suddenly they're friends over coffee. That's right. You make new friends all the time everywhere you go. You just have a smile on your face and, and be willing to have a chat. All right. Well, thank you on that note for having a chat with me today. <laughs> no worries. It's been great. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.